The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Beside Still Waters. Thank you for joining me today as we talk about God's nearness. I would remind you that this podcast is devoted to helping Christians from all denominations foster a genuine, life-changing walk with God that is living daily with the consciousness that I am holding the hand of God through every circumstance. We are looking at Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21, when Jesus came down from the mountain where he was transfigured uh, before three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. These men were given an extraordinary view of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having had that experience, he charged them to remain silent on what they, as regarding what they had seen. And uh, the constraint was to do so until the Son of Man is risen from the dead, as he said in the ninth verse. Evidently, there was a crowd waiting for them at the uh, bottom of the mountain, and what unfolded was again something of the mysterious ways of God. One will find, as we grow in the Lord Jesus, grow in our relationship, that God doesn't waste any experience. John wrote, for example, we beheld his glory, the glory of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that uh, transfiguration experience was certainly an eye-opening uh, experience for these three men. There's also another life lesson of walking by faith. And we're going to take a look at that uh, as we go on in this uh, podcast. What we find in the narrative is a man had a lunatic, demon-possessed child. And this very circumstance exposes what can be considered as the Achilles heel of the Christian, the Achilles heel of the Christian, the weak point. This man, this father, was distressed by the fact that his child, being demon-possessed, had no control over his natural faculties, 
and in his desperation, falling on his knees, begs for divine intervention. And uh, the statement betraying the spiritual impotence of the disciples was stated outright. This man exposed the remaining nine-plus disciples. And we find it uh, in verse 16, when he says, I brought him, that is his child, to your disciples, and they were not able to heal him. And this statement evokes rebuke from the Lord Jesus. And I ask you, why? Why did Jesus say that these people, these unfortunate disciples were unbelieving and perverted? I mean, that's a, that's a real scathing indictment. It's an indictment of the faithlessness of his followers. In fact, as, as we look at the history of Israel in particular, their wilderness wanderings revealed that they were plagued with unbelief, failing constantly to recognize the hand of God in the trials that they faced. And in every trial, in every trial, in fact, if you were to go back from read from Exodus right through to um, uh, the end of uh, the book of Numbers, every trial had embedded in it an opportunity, the very stuff that God designs for them to call upon him, to look to him, and to find in him a steadfast and sure resource. So I ask you this question, why is unbelief abhorrent to God? Why is it an affront to his person? Faithlessness attributes characteristics to God that are contrary to his nature and person. The story that he tells, or that it tells, is that the follower of this God, this omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, the follower is saying by their faithlessness, their unbelief, that this limitless God is impotent. Impotent. And that impotence is characterized in the weakness of the faith of his followers, his devotees, his disciples. In short, my weakness or failing is God's weakness and failing. That is what our unbelief is actually stating. I am weak because God is weak. Now, we're not saying that outright, but unbelief is stating that, that I have no confidence in this God because he is not omnipotent. Secondly, it suggests that God is limited by the constraints I placed on him. For example, in Psalm 78 and I think the 19th verse, Israel said this concerning Jehovah. And the word says, they spoke against God and said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? The disciples did not see that the flaw was not in a failure to apply some methodology by saying, you know, to the demon, come out of him. 
But the flaw was the absence of the one ingredient that will enable any disciple to become the channel of the grace and power of God. And that ingredient is faith. In verse 17, we see that unbelief is an affront to God as it does not recognize, unbelief does not recognize the fault as being that of the person, the follower, but rather it ascribes fault as belonging to God. God is impotent. God is unwilling. God is careless. It suggests, in addition, that God's limitations are our limitations. They asked, why could we not cast the demon out? Now, when you read that question, it is not an acknowledgement that we were weak, we've done something wrong, but it's looking elsewhere for the reason, the cause. And their failure betrayed their condition, and they were blind to it. They were blind to it. We'll see shortly. They were unbelieving and spiritually perverted. The Lord Jesus pointed to them, as it were, and stated clearly the fault was not in God, nor was the weakness in God. It was you. So I want you to consider this. The greatest privilege is to be used of God to affect men for the kingdom of God in a noble way, in a good way. And this particular man with this demon-possessed child had a need. And not only was the child helpless, but he was helpless. And yet, the very purpose of God for his believing people was to be Christ to this man. To meet this man's need through his personal emissaries. The Lord Jesus had the expectation that his followers would intercede on behalf of those in need, and alas, they found themselves unable and impotent in the hands of God and couldn't figure out the why of it. While Jesus was at the top of the mount with Peter, James, and John revealing his glory, he expected that those who were left behind would be able to do what they have seen modeled but they were impotent. Prayer is limitless. The question at the forefront, that is, why were we not able to, and you can finish this question by identifying what your personal lack is. Why am I unable, unable to love my brother? Why am I unable to pray with the full expectation that God will answer. And, and there are a myriad of questions we can ask ourselves why we were not able to, and you can finish the statement. But in that statement is the awareness that there's a lack of power in my service. And the Lord Jesus spares no words nor mitigates the sting of, those, of, of, of his, his assessment. Faithless perverted, unbelieving. But rather, the Lord Jesus drives the issue home by identifying the one factor rendering every servant of God ineffective, and that is unbelief. My friend, unbelief is the poison 
that nullifies the working of the Holy Spirit. Unbelief are the scales that prevents seeing the might of God in response to prayer. Unbelief is the thief that robs us of the evident grace and power of God in our lives. And now the solution is presented to them, both the object and the quantity. The Lord Jesus is about to speak about the dynamics that are specific and limited to the spiritual world, the interaction between uh, a person's spirit and the spirit of God. He's dealing with the inner environment of the heart, and this is of critical importance. The heart, I believe, should be looking solely to God with the full expectation that God will bring a result to pass. A heart that is trusting in the promises of God and is waiting upon God in the, in the quietude of prayer fundamentally believes that what he has revealed about himself, that is, what God has revealed about himself, both in his attributes and his workings in times past, that he has not changed. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, be transported there, and it shall transport itself. Now, now a lot of people have spiritualized this statement, and if it was a spiritual analogy, Jesus would have said something like, as he said in, in, in earlier, I think around chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, okay, He's creating an analogy to describe the kingdom of heaven. But he didn't say faith is like. He says if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed. He said all you need is a little bit. And you're going to say to this mountain, be transported from this point to that point, And it will transport itself. And Jesus opens this truth, this teaching with one word, amen. When he says, verily I say unto you, in the original languages, it is amen. It simply means surely or truly or of a truth. It is a faithful statement, a factual spiritual reality. Amen. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, amen. You shall say to this mountain, be transported there. Amen. It shall transport itself. Now, if you're struggling with this, my friends, I have to say, you are probably struggling with believing, faithful, praying. We typically uh, use the amen as a suffix of sorts at the end of a prayer. You know, we ask God what we have and we'll say, in Jesus' name, amen. But that has become a rote statement, a phrase that we use. We're accustomed to saying that. And Jesus is reversing that and saying, amen. You just need a mustard seed amount of faith, and you're going to say to this mountain, be transported, and it's going to transport itself. 
And so the Lord Jesus reverses the order as this fundamental truth is germane. I repeat, this fundamental truth is germane to any successful spiritual endeavor, movement, action, or even perspective. Faith is the bridge which spans the gulf between time, space, and our senses and the world of spirit. Faith and faith alone is the bridge spanning the gulf between time and sense and the world of spirit. So, here's the turning point. The Lord Jesus takes three of these disciples uh, up the mountain to see his glory. The other nine plus were left uh, to have the opportunity I think, to also see the glory of God working through them against the unseen powers of darkness. Here they are standing before a supreme opportunity to walk in the realm of the Spirit of God, to walk in the Spirit, and they could not enter into that realm. Why? Well, if we look back at Israel, when they were in the wilderness, they could not see the hand of God, nor believe that Jehovah was among them, even though the cloud, the pillar, the, uh, pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was there all the time, even until they wandered in the desert for 40 years, failed at Kadesh Barnea, and so forth. God's presence was always there among them, leading, providing for them. Every day. And so too the disciples failed to grasp the significance of the moment that was before them. They remember, keep this in mind, they had the experience of being sent out as ambassadors at one point earlier in Jesus' ministry and coming back and relating to the Lord Jesus how even the demons were subject to them. And of course, you know, he said to them, you know, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are written in, 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 uh, in, in heaven. These men also saw and heard, for example, the centurion when he declared by the mouth of his messengers. Now remember, he sent his friends. First he sent the leaders of the Jews, and then secondly he sent his friends when he saw that they were actually coming to his home. And his friends are saying that he said, just say the word and my servant shall be healed. So it's not even this man saying it of himself. He gave them words to say to Jesus. That means his faith was so great that it's working even through these people who are just relating what he said to them. His faith had no boundaries. The disciples also saw and heard the woman with the issue of blood confess to the crowds that she thought in her heart, if I but touch the hem of its garment, I shall be healed. And she was restored fully. And they were also eyewitnesses of that Canaanitish woman who, though not an Israelite, demonstrated perseverance in faith, not allowing herself to be deterred by the Lord Jesus' silence or his verbal rebuffs, only to hear the blessed words, go in peace, great is your faith. And so the life lesson here, my friends, 
is that flesh is powerless to produce the work, the evidence, and the result that the Holy Spirit of God alone performs, whether it involves uh, personal spiritual transformation or it involves bringing our petitions before God or it may even in in in, in the uh, the arena where uh, we are waiting on answers to our petitions in time and space the spirit of god is the executor of the will of god in our lives using us to be as the song says channels of blessing using us to manifest the power and grace of God. And so we see this principle at work in the healing of the centurion's servant. He said through his emissaries, if you, this is what he's saying to the Lord Jesus, if you but say the word, my servant shall be healed. Luke, you find it in Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 7. And he went on to express his understanding of this spiritual dynamic as he observed his own human authority over his soldiers and servants. So too, the Lord Jesus put his finger on the same principle by saying, if you say unto this mountain, be transported there, it shall transport itself. Verse 20 of Matthew 17. And we see a second aspect to this great principle of exercising active faith. And forgive me if I don't use words that are common for the various groups that you may fellowship in. But the point is, faith is an active element at work. It's active. And so, most notably, the centurion demonstrated this principle when he said to Jesus via his friends, if you but say the word, my servant shall be healed. And he was saying, in fact... Issue the command. Issue the divine command. This soldier fully expected the Lord Jesus to do the impossible with one command. And it didn't even necessitate that he comes to the man's house. And so when we look at this failure of the disciples in Matthew 17, Jesus used this as an opportunity to teach something that was invaluable. And that is the importance of a verbal declaration. And this is what I want to emphasize. That was preceded by faith-filled praying. A verbal declaration preceded by faith-filled praying. I vividly recall some years ago uh, a circumstance in which I was unemployed for almost a year. I was at the end, I, I was, well, it was a full year. It was a full 12 months, quite frankly. And I was led of the Spirit to devote approximately three or more months in focused praying regarding this need. And at one point, as I was strengthening my faith in and by God's Word, I came across the incident where Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and that can be found in Genesis 45, the first 15 verses. And in those verses of Scripture, the Spirit of God revealed it to my heart that he had provided for me. He witnessed within my spirit that my request was granted before. 
before the answer was manifested in time and space. And this can only be done by the Spirit of God. My request was granted, and I emphasize, before I actually saw it with my eyes. The witness of God's Spirit was so clear within my spirit that the verses became, as it were, the voice of God to me. That as he preserved Joseph and subsequently the the, the 70 souls of, of Israel's family, so too he has already preserved my life and that I, I, like them, would not be impoverished. And so immediately at that point, I profusely offered praise and thanksgiving to God uh, uh, for giving me employment when I had not even, and I want to emphasize, I didn't even apply for a position at that very point that the Spirit of God witnessed within my spirit, nor had I identified a company to work for. This was such a, 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 a very unique experience. And so upon returning home, I told my wife of the incident. She looked at me with a bewildered expression and she asked the obvious question, where will you be working? And I said, I don't know. But God has already answered and confirmed, get this, that I am working. (laughs) She then said, well, have you received any responses from recruiters? I said, no, but God has already answered. And as of this moment, I am employed. She then followed with, and what will you tell the believers who have been praying for you? And I said, I will tell them exactly as I just told you. And thus I gave the same response to my brothers and sisters who knew of my unemployment circumstances. I gave them the same witness that I gave to my wife. And they looked just as bewildered, I might add. (laughs) And so I want to tell you that it came to pass that very week, I sat at my desk, knowing that my prayer had been answered. I said to the Lord, okay, where do I start? Where do I put in my application? And the Spirit of God led me to submit my first application after 12 months, really after six months of, of the first six months of, of uh, no success, after six months of not sending any resumes, but just spending time alone with God, the first place that he led me to apply is at the very bank where I have my accounts. And so I put in an application at their career site, and within 72 hours, I heard from a recruiter who, get this, in prior years, worked as one of my direct reports. This person reported to me at a different company, different industry. And so this uh, recruiter, who was a former employee, was the very instrument that God used to bring me into the employment sphere. And so the same principle that Jesus was attempting to teach his disciples And the same principle that was used by the centurion in the healing of his servant, and the same principle that was used by the woman with the issue of blood when she said, if I but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be healed, is the same principle that we are talking about right now. And there are about four parts to this spiritual dynamic that the Lord Jesus was introducing to his followers. And this will be found in any circumstance where the people of God will wax bold for the kingdom of God, just as we find in Hebrews chapter 11. Firstly, 
This boldness is preceded by prayer and fasting. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. There is a world of darkness, of demonic spirits. Unfortunately, we have to contend with them, but we don't contend with them by fighting against people. No, we contend with them by prayer and fasting. And this is the place where we receive grace, power, and answers to our prayers. And this is also validated in Matthew 6, 6, that your father who sees in secret shall render it to you. In other words, what God, what you and I have discussed with God in secret, he answers in public. Secondly, if you shall say, that is, the Lord Jesus said, if you shall say to this mountain, that's a verbal declaration predicated on the basis of faith. Just as I said to my wife, I'm employed. Well, from her perspective, I'm not employed. But from the perspective of faith, I was employed because the Spirit witnessed with my spirit that I have been heard. And then the third thing the Lord Jesus said, if you say to this mountain, this was a monumental roadblock. This mountain is an obstacle. Well, unemployment was an obstacle for me. But I laughed at it because God witnessed within my spirit by his spirit, you're employed. And it didn't make a difference whether or not I was physically sitting in an office. From God's perspective, it was complete. I had been heard. He had granted it. That is the end of the matter. And lastly, the Lord Jesus said, be transported there. That impossibility, a mountain being moved. Just as I said to my wife, I am now employed before I was actually employed. So I repeat, this kind goes not out except by prayer and fasting. That's what Jesus says. Such boldness in faith is always predicated by prayer and often prayer with fasting. Two, if you shall say, that's a verbal declaration predicated on the basis of faith. And you shall say to this mountain, that's a monumental roadblock as unemployment was to me. And lastly, be transported over there. The impossibility, but to God, having granted our request, the impossibility melts away. So, let's, let's summarize our thoughts here. How do you know that your faith is really operative, that it's functioning, that it's healthy? Well, the answer is, if you and I accept as a given the facts that the scriptures reveal to us about God and his ways and his person, then that faith either acts or asks or expresses acceptance of the request as already received even before the expected result comes to pass. And then the next question you might ask is, well, how much faith is needed? And I will say the minimal amount, less than the size of a grape seed. If you've seen a mustard seed and you see a grape seed, about a third of a grape seed is about the size of a mustard seed. That's just for those of you who may not have, have uh, seen a, um, uh, a mustard seed. And a minimal amount is needed for those who have never even seen what a mustard seed looks like. So here are the salient points that I want to uh, reiterate to you. 
It is not a lot of faith that is necessary, but the presence of a very lively, active faith that's vital. A mustard seed amount is more than sufficient to move an insurmountable obstacle. In fact, mountains are powerless against faith, for faith, sincere faith, convinced confidence, rests in the God who created the mountain. Whereas, unbelief renders every circumstance and every mountain more powerful than God, for it sees the obstacle as being larger than the presence of God. Not only does faith overcome any obstacle, but secondly, faith is also clearly manifested and evidenced by the very words of our mouth. The faith-filled heart and the prayerful life that preceded the what I call the absolute, trustworthy, confident declaration that God has heard and has answered. The believing disciple can say to the obstacle, be removed. It's evidenced by the very declarations, the very words of our mouths. Thirdly, the audible command speaks clearly to an active, unshakable confidence in an unshakable God. But the audible command is not some charismatic exhibition. No, absolutely not. But the faithful exercise of a principle practiced by the very patriarchs of the faith. Read Hebrews 11 and you will see that it is the absolute assurance in the heart of the believer that they have been heard of God during prayer and can say to an unbelieving world that this prayer, this request will come to pass, not because the disciple is anything of themselves, but because their reliance, their confidence is on the great and precious promises of God and all that he reveals about himself. And these promises will enable us to literally walk with God. Only unbelief, lastly, only, or I should say fourthly, only unbelief or faith can really exist in the human psyche, in the human heart. Spirit or flesh must dominate within the the volitional world of the believer. We either walk in the spirit or we walk in the flesh. And whichever is yielded to or exercised will result in one of these statements. And you tell me which one applies to you. Just say the word and my servant shall be healed. Or why could we not cast him out? You can only say one of the two. Your heart can only be filled with faith and you'll say, Father, just say the word, command it. Or I would be on my knees confessing my my flaw and fault to God. Why couldn't I cast him out? Why couldn't I be bold in my faith? And then lastly, there are no impossibilities that God or that, that can stand before faith in an omnipotent God. There are no impossibilities that can resist his power. Everything is weak before faith. And the predecessor to faith is prayer and at times prayer with fasting when in conflict with the very powers of darkness. It is in the exercise of faith in God's great and rare promises 
coupled with prayer, that confidence in God's ability gains its potency like a lump of dough that has a little measure of yeast mixed into it. That lump has to be kneaded and pressed and stretched in preparation to have the yeast take its full effect. And that same lump must also remain fixed, unmoved, that it might rise and expand in its size. And before long, the little bit of yeast, (laughs) that active agent like faith, becomes active and causes the lump of dough to increase exponentially in its size. In the same way, faith is made ready, strengthened, as we wait on an omnipotent God standing on the absolute assurance that his word cannot fail. And there, in the secret place, alone with God, faith and the promises are mixed together in the heart and made ready to lay hold on God's divine willingness to respond favorably to the extent that the matter we have asked of him, we receive. And so Matthew 17 has as its focus, believing prayer. Believing prayer as an exercise. And the challenge that we're facing, the mountain, that experience is the very crucible that, 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 that circumstance of impossibilities becomes the very crucible within which faith is evident and operative. Prayer without faith is just mere babbling. We're, just, we're going through a, a, a vain exercise. But prayer must have faith as its foundation. And faith is clearly operative in the realm of prayer. The two go together. They are wedded inseparably. And if exercised rightly, our faith, our confidence swells to the place where uh, having been heard and the Spirit of God witnessing with our spirit, we grow bold to the extent that we can rise from our knees knowing we have been heard. And in the full assurance of that faith, we can say with boldness before men and angels that this matter that we've been praying for shall come to pass. Not because there's any power in the words that we speak, but the words have sprung from a heart full of faith in an omnipotent God and his unfailing word, which shall never pass away. Oh, my dear friend, my fellow Christian, let us take time to draw near to God in the quiet place, the place beside still waters, where we can wait upon the Lord and restore our confidence in his unchanging, faithful promises, knowing fully that he hears us when we ask not only according to his will, but in the full assurance of faith. And in time, He witnesses by his spirit that we have been heard and we can go forth confidently saying to an unbelieving world, God has heard my prayer. It shall come to pass. It will be well with me. Oh, may God help us to enter into his presence 
with a heart full of faith, pleasing him and bringing glory to God. And may we experience personal growth and edification as we walk with God beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.